皆さん、こんばんは。明けましておめでとうございます。今年もよろしくお願いいたします。お正月どう過ごしたんでしょうかおせちを食べて初詣に行きましたかこたつをか囲んでゆっくりしましたでしょうかいずれにしても充実した連休になったことをお祈りします。えー、僕はですねあの、ほぼ2年ぶりにアメリカに帰りました。ノースカロライナ州にある実家で5日間ぐらい、まあ、のんびりしてから、えーまあ、そしてあそこで年越しをしてから中西部のシカゴ市に移りましたでシカゴって大都会ですよね僕自身は若い頃から親戚に会いにシカゴに行き来して,してきましたが6年間日本に住んでこの28歳になってもシカゴのすごさに驚きますね。広くて美しく迫力のある大都会で、まあ、ある意味でアメリカを象徴している都市だと思っています。うん、そしてもう一つあの、今日のエピソードに入る前にですねあの、皆さんと共有したいことがあります。それはですね、あの僕は毎年元日に今年の目標を4つか5つ設定してるようにしてます。で目標設定が、まあ、成長の源泉であると心の中で信じていますので一旦設定してから、まあ、あの達成に向けて精一杯取り組んでいきます。ということで2019年の4つの目標を、まあ、ここで皆さんと共有しようと思っています。で1番、えー、ポッドキャストを成長させて2019年中に第50話を出すことを目指しています。2番、次のステップの明確化をベースに5年間計画を立てること。3つ目、これが肉体的な目標です。<笑>ちょっと細かいんですけど、まず開脚ができるようになることと、あとはヨーガでダウンワード道具から直接に逆立ちに。入れるるようになることと、えー、最後に、えー、とある運動ルーティンを、えー、年間で365回完成することっていう3つ軽なる1つの目標ですそして最後に、えー、と過去4年連続達成していますが行ったことがない3箇所に行,か行くこと。えー、今の時点で、まあ、この4つの目標を上げて、えー、取り組んでいこうとはしてるんですけれども、まあ、必要であれば5つ目を足していこうかなっていう感じで考えてますで皆さんにとって2019年はどんな1年になるのでしょうか元日の書き初めで私は「実る」っていう字を書かせてもらいました昨年の頑張りの積み重ねが、まあ、今年しっかりと実り、まあ、花が咲いていくために、まあ、努力を惜しまないという意味ですさて第4話なんですけれども本日のゲストはアメリカ人のジョノサン・リアさんですでジョノサンさんはカリフォルニア大学バーカリー校の博士課程で現在、東京大学の社会科学研究所の客員研究員です
今日はですね、東大で主に彼の研究テーマ、とりわけ第二次大戦後、日本と西ドイツにおける原子力の歴史の比較研究です。まあ、についてあの、しっかりと話し込みました。で英語ネイティブじゃない方にとってはですね、あの専門的な話が少し分かりにくいかもしれませんが、まあ、21世紀の日本にとってこの研究の重要性は言うまでもありませんね。このエピソードは 3.11 に触れないことに実はわざとしていますが、ジョン・サンさんはまあ歴史学の務めが、えー、務め自体はまあ生身の人間がどういったロジックを持って過去を作ってきたのか、まあ、これを解明することでありそのためには現代人の先入観を投げ捨てなければならない、えー、という信念を持って強調,強調をしています、まあ、なかなか説得力はありますよねということであの英語の解説の後ジョナサンさんのお話を深く聞いてみてくださいあの日本の将来にとって大変に意味のある話だからですご傾聴いただきますようよろしくお願いいたしますそして最後に2019年が、まあ、皆さんにとって最高の1年になりますよう Made it in Japan からお祈りをしていますいつもありがとうございます What's going on, everybody? And thank you as always for listening to Made It in Japan. This is your host, Elliot Conti, saying hello for the first time in 2019. How was everyone's new year? I hope everyone had a safe and fulfilling holiday, whether they spent it in Japan, the United States, or any place else in the world. I was back in the US for my first time in almost two, in almost two years,、uh, half of which I spent in North Carolina and the remainder in Chicago. And to this day, I'm actually still blown away by Chicago.、Uh, perhaps after living in Japan for six years, my sense of scale has become a bit Japanese. And yeah, I might be even more impressed today by Chicago than I ever have been.、Uh, the sort of history of the city and the impact of the skyscrapers along Lake Michigan. It's Brutal in a way,、uh, but I find it to be very real,、uh, sort of a, a very American city. But anyway,、uh, did everyone set their resolutions for 2019? I actually don't set resolutions, I, I set goals on January 1st of every year, and I'm quite obsessive about actualizing them. And as such, to make sure that you all hold me accountable, I'd like to share my goals for 2019 with you all quite briefly here. The first is to put out at least 50 episodes of the podcast this year and increase my listener base. Number two is craft a life plan、uh, that spans the next five years and focuses on clarifying the next major stage of my life. Number three, the physical goals for this year. First is to be able to do the splits. Number two is to be able to go from a downward facing dog directly into a handstand.、Uh, for those of you who are familiar with yoga, will know what I'm talking about. And then the third one is to complete a given, uh, a given workout.、Um, it's an MMA based workout, a total of 365 times for the year, once every day. And the final goal for this year, which I set every year and have Actualized it the last three years is to visit three places which I have never been. 
Now, if any of you listeners have goals for 2019, I would love it if you shared them with me. That way we can uh, work together, make sure that we accomplish them come December 31st, 2019. Anyway, moving into today's episode. The guest is uh, Mr. Jonathan Lear. He is an American who is currently a visiting researcher at Tokyo University. And Jonathan is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley right now. And he's been in Japan uh, since last summer. But I actually met him more than five years ago when he was doing his initial stay in Japan, uh, a three-year stint in Nagoya. Now, Jonathan is a historian who is currently doing a comparative history of atomic energy in Japan and West Germany following World War II. And this was a fascinating discussion for me, actually, um, for I studied modern Japanese history while I was doing my undergrad, uh, but the content ran a bit dry. It got a bit, it got a bit thin following World War II. So a lot of what Jonathan had to say was actually new for me. And also his research is, needless to say, of great import to us and to Japan uh, today, as it attempts to understand the rationale and thought processes behind the development of nuclear energy, which can obviously provide crucial insight for how we, here in the 21st century, ought to think about uh, energy issues and even matters like AI and uh, newly developing technologies. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly enjoyed talking with Jonathan. And I wish you all a safe, happy, and most importantly, challenging 2019. Thanks again. Jonathan, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it very much. This is the first time uh, we've seen each other in probably five years. Correct, Amundo. Yeah, we first met each other back in Nagoya mm-hmm. when we were colleagues at an English school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was right in the start of my initial stay here. Which will be in left Japan. unnamed, I presume. Oh, we can give the name. Yeah, we don't have to. Yeah, there are no big secrets. We were working at ECC. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, how did you go from five years ago? teaching English mm-hmm. at a large English school, at, well, at ECC, to now doing research, being a visiting researcher here at Tokyo University. Okay, so f- five years ago, that must have been 2014? 13 or 14, oh, around then. Okay. Um, well, to be honest, the plan before I had ever moved to Japan um, was to eventually do a PhD because I had already completed a master's degree um, based more or less in the field of history uh, before I ever moved to Japan, before I knew anything about Japan, before I knew Japanese. Mm. And the plan for coming to Japan was that, uh, you know, I'm not going to just come here and have no direction and just sort of, you know, float off into the future. I'm, I'm going right. to learn Japanese and I'm going to use that language and right. hopefully catapult myself into the future somehow with that. Um, so... I guess late 2013, early 2014, I was trying to figure out how I could put my hard work to use because I, because I had, to some extent, um, become literate 
uh, fairly literate in Japanese at that point. Right. So I started figuring out how to apply to PhD programs in the field of history, which is what I wanted to do. Mm. I spent 2014 working on all the things you need to work on in order to submit a successful application. Right. And then lo and behold, I got accepted at a few places. I, I decided to go to Berkeley. Right. And, you know, three years of really taking a deep dive into the field of Japanese history um, mm. helped me to prepare, you know, project proposals for doing my dissertation. Mm. And through these connections at the University of California with the University of Tokyo, through my advisors mm. um, and such, I was able to, um, I guess, secure a position as a visiting researcher here mm. at the University of Tokyo Institute of Social Science. So that, that's sort of the, the general path of how I got here. Right. And when did you come to Tokyo again? Um, how long have you been here? So I guess that would have been beginning of July 2018. So I've been here for a little over six months now. Yeah. yeah. And how long will you stay? Are there term limits or is it indefinite? Um, so I have, I have a, a fellowship from, from Fulbright, which is, I guess, an institution many people know about. And the, for Japan, this is usually 12 months, but some, mm. I think people have the option of extending it to maybe up to 18 months. Um, so, okay. so the original plan was to simply do a year here yeah. um, because my, my, you know, my research is actually comparative history where I'm, I'm, I'm working on both West Germany and Japan. Um, yeah. So the plan for next year is to actually go to Germany. Wow. So I, I can't stay here indefinitely, but um, mm. sometimes I feel like I would like to, although I don't <laughs> want to be here in the summer because... It's brutal, yeah? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really uncomfortable. You lived in Nagoya, so you got the worst of it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nagoya is brutal. It's extremely humid, uh, especially this past summer. The 2018 summer was by far the hardest I've had to overcome in the... the well, I guess it's my seventh year now, so in the prior mm -hmm. uh, six summers to that. I would... Ooh, <laughs> I was I was ready to to give up in yeah, a right. sense. Yeah, I I was I was totally fed up with with uh, life in Japan with the lack of a central cooling system, but I somehow made it through, and I'm I'm looking to uh, to fare better in 2019. So anyway, uh, I want to stay back. I want to go back uh, just a, a little bit more and revisit your masters. Mm -hmm. You said you did a master's in history. Mm -hmm. Was this Japanese history as well? No, this was mm. specifically foc focusing on um, more or less post-war contemporary German history. And my, my interest, that, that was originally what I, what I got interested in doing. I wanted to be a, a German historian because then, cool, you get to write about World War II and the Nazis and stuff. Right. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't want to write about that? <laughs> um, but eventually, I, well, so I did the master's program and... Mm. I was trying to think of a, an interesting topic to write about, and I was in a seminar on contemporary history, which basically mm -hmm. meant everything after World War II. Um, so, right. you know, I had to find a question that was, you know, more, had to do more with the present than something like World War II. Mm. Um, so that's how I got interested in the history of nuclear energy. Right. Um, once I realized, you know, I was looking, reading the German news every day and realizing, you know, this is 2010, 2011, right when Chancellor Merkel was 
considering extend, extending the lifespans of these um, aging nuclear power stations. Okay. And I was, you know, looking at all the protests and and just watching all the news and trying to maybe go back to the origins of all these controversies, mm. um, which, you know, the, the nuclear controversy really happened in the in Germany, at least West Germany, in the mid early mid nineteen seventies, right around the time of the oil crisis, and extending, you know, for the next, well, really indefinitely in some sense. Okay. So that's how I got interested in that question and yeah. how I put my, you know, German history focus to work um, on a particular uh, question. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that's where I got started. Um, and but after I finished, I I said, you know. This was a really rough year because it was a, a master's program condensed into a year. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was at the University of Chicago, which is known for being a very brutal place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And perhaps it is. I, uh, I just got back from Chicago. Really? I was there. Yeah. Yeah. My brother did his undergrad at UFC, so I'm quite familiar. And so he survived? Area, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He survived. <laughs> yeah. He survived and, and did his PhD as well. He, he's currently in his first year. As an associate professor at uh, at Princeton, that's terrific. So, yeah, yeah. But anyway, sorry. Uh, you did your master's in a year at UFC, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so you know they have T-shirts there that say "University of Chicago, Hell Does Freeze Over." You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's not so. That's not exactly how I felt. But after that year, I felt like I needed a break and I needed to maybe expand my mind a little bit and sure. not be so "quote unquote" Eurocentric. So that's where the idea of learning a, a non-European language came in. Because mm. I knew I wanted to go further, but I knew I needed to sit down and rethink things. Okay. Because, you know, I, I, within four or five months' time, which was the amount of time I had to, from planning to end, right. write a thesis, mm. think of a historical question, do this work, <laughs> and then write a thesis. Yeah. They, like, they push you through this program. Like, it's like boot camp. It's like yeah. social science boot camp. Yeah. That, that's really <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Um, and it works. It trains you how to think like a social scientist or a historian. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was in the end. I needed to take take time off, have my mind go in a different direction, learn a new language, and yeah, that's how I. And I just I kind of just picked Japan randomly. I didn't actually mm. have a serious interest or know anything about the language. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's how a lot of foreigners sort of come to Japan. I th I th yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> I think there are there are a couple of patterns. One are those who are who have been interested in Japan, uh, specifically pop culture, mm -hmm. from you know uh, some time in their youth. Mm -hmm. They liked like Dragon Ball Z mm -hmm. or Hello Kitty mm -hmm. or anime, uh, anime or manga, different things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and that is sort of then the impetus for them to start studying Japanese right, right, right. or eventually study abroad. This and right. that. And then there are others who, you know, uh, graduate university back in their home nation mm -hmm. and want to take time off, study, or not, not just study, but uh, sort of refresh themselves for a year to mm -hmm. two years. And they want something, you know, outside of the norm, mm -hmm. something non-Western, so to speak. And Japan then uh, becomes quite an attractive option. It sounds like you fit into the latter. Yeah, that, that's probably, yes, most certainly. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't realize how sometimes expensive life could be in Japan. Mm. Um, but the, you know, the salary for relatively limited amount of work um, seemed fair. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, at ECC, yeah, mm -hmm. there's no doubt. How did you end up in Nagoya then? Well, I, I originally... <laughs> 
what happens when you do an interview with that company and yeah. they and you know they think well I think your your application is going to go through mm. um, you know you list or you're given a choice of three areas and it's like Kanto Chubu or Kansai right and I think I listed f I didn't I don't think I wanted to be in Tokyo mm. because I, I mean I think I had, I lived in New York City I lived in Chicago I think I knew what living in a big you know, cosmopolitan city was like, right? And I wanted to go maybe somewhere else. Not that Osaka and Nagoya are not, you know, international or cosmopolitan, but I, I think I listed Kansai first because I was told that Kansai is a really interesting place. It is. Um, but that <laughs> didn't go through, uh, and I was put in, in yeah. Nagoya, which yeah. is brutally hot. Yeah, yeah. And has a reputation, uh, I think, somewhat unfairly for being the most boring city in Japan. Well, it's certainly not the most exciting. Uh, that's certainly true. Well, I, I, I kind of did things uh, backwards. When I first lived in Nagoya, I, it was my only impression of Japan. I had no, no standard by mm -hmm. which to judge you know, uh, what a Japanese urban environment is like. Right. So I had no problems with living in Nagoya. And I went from there to do three years of research at Osaka City University, living downtown, mm -hmm. um, living with Kansai people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I met my fiance there, who mm -hmm. was born and raised in Osaka. Very, very different from Nagoya. Right. Right. And then just in the last year and a half, I've moved back to Nagoya. And it, uh, it's not quite as exciting as it used to be. It has, um, a, it has a charm, though. There's a, there's, a, there's a subtle charm that it has. Mm. And I think it has to do with the, the hearty, deep-fried foods, like yeah. miso katsu. I mean, yeah. I have... Are you a big fan of the, I'm a big the fan. Nagoya? Uh, yeah. Particularly just miso katsu. I think it's, really? I think it's ter terrific. Yeah. Because if you ask people in other parts of Japan, like, do you like miso katsu? They'll be kind of grossed out. Like, oh, no, I don't do that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. They, they <laughs> that is true. That's interesting. People complain or they, they sort of poke fun at Nagoya mm -hmm. because it has very rich food, very mm -hmm. homey. Mm -hmm. uh, it's soul food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's Nagoya soul food. But, uh, well, anytime you get a hankering for some miso katsu, come. We have a guest room at my place. Oh, you should thanks. come. Yeah come uh, have some. So anyway, um, you moved to Japan mm -hmm. and it's, was it in Japan that you started making, uh, applying for your doctorate? Yeah, so yeah. It, I did, I, ba I basically did three years um, as an English teacher. Mm. First year I, I, I started What's the adjective I want to use? Vigorously studying Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Um, second year, I, I kind of bounced around and didn't really, I kind of lost my way a little mm. bit. Um, and then at the end of the second year um, and into the third year was when I really got focused. Um, yeah. And so it was that last year and that I spent, you know, you got to spend six months putting together an app, a, a PhD application if you want to do a good one and if you want to get accepted because there's right. a lot of research you got to put in. Where do you want to apply? Right. You can, you know, you have to find places with advisors that are working on projects or at least even just working on Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to find someone working on Japan, someone working on modern Japan. I, my, my project has to do with the history of science and the history of nuclear energy, so you need people who can teach you about that. Right. Um, uh, Berkeley has a r historically very important uh, department of nuclear engineering, 
Mm. Um, I mean, really? just in terms of nuclear energy, Berkeley is one of the birthplaces of the atomic bomb. Mm. Um, so it has this very deep history related, uh, you know, the, the institution itself has a deep history that, you know, made it important that, yeah, I guess me being there was important for helping to develop my project because right. you get to meet all these people who've had um, sometimes a lifetime of experience and invaluable knowledge. Mm. Um, and all, all this stuff put together um, made that a, made Berkeley a good place for me to be in. Right. But I am I'm getting off off topic. Your question was just. Mm. Yeah. No. No. That. But that's that's interesting to me. It does sound very difficult difficult for you to find someone who can advise your project because mm -hmm. the scope is quite broad, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's international, mm -hmm. it's, right, uh, it's comparative. Mm -hmm. You're looking then at a very, uh, a topic like nuclear energy. I don't know, I, I mean, I imagine that within social sciences, this is a topic of, of some importance, mm -hmm. obviously. I'm not familiar with the, with the literature by any mm -hmm. means, but it seems like it would be hard to find someone who could really uh, help guide you through something so, uh, I don't know if it may be ambitious, um, but quite broad in scope, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's quite broad, but it's act, in some sense it's actually quite narrow. Um, okay. Because you're looking at sort of well, as a phenomenon that sort of captured the globe mm. um, from the, if you're talking about the history of commercial nuclear energy, it's sort of, let's say 1953, 1955 is when it all sort of starts. Mm. And all sorts of countries start developing these very similar institutions you know, the Atomic Energy Commission. How many countries have an Atomic Energy Commission that uses the same initials, AEC? Mm. Probably five or ten. I don't know. Okay. Every, every country that is doing this develops an Atomic Energy Forum, which is a sort of, I don't know, a coalition of interests that get together to help develop these things. And they're all working on, they're not all designing the exact same technology, but they're all working with a type of science that is mm. considered to be universally accepted. Right. Um, so it, what's happening in multiple places is actually quite similar and you just need someone to begin to tie a story together and then you start to realize that the people who are working on this project in Japan are very closely working with or, or know on a personal level people mm. working on similar things in West Germany, in France, in England, mm. in the United States. Um, so there's a sort of... Uh, this is a cosmopolitan group of people that all know each other and all speak the same language, both in, in terms of the science that they do, right. and they're also all speaking English to one another. Right, right. Um, although they write in their, their own languages when they talk about their project amongst themselves. Right. So I thought it was, I thought, the, I thought the project made sense to me, mm. and the thing is convincing all these advisors who work you know, I have an advisor who works on modern Japan, pretty mm. much solely modern Japan, although he has interests in, in modern Russia and modern, in modern Germany and stuff like that. Right. And then working with um, an advisor who, who's trained in modern German history, but also has these very sort of uh, cosmopolitan interests in, in broad sort of phenomenon, phenomena like the history of human rights mm. or the history of civil society or sort of things, that sort of stuff. And then I have an advisor who works on primarily the history of nuclear energy. And she wrote a, she wrote a book about Heisenberg. Um, mm. And then I have an advisor from the nuclear engineering department um, who, uh, you know, this is his life in some sense. Sure. Um, sure. So I put together what I, I would call a coalition of the willing <laughs> uh, because I had to convince these people that this project make, made sense. Right. And, 
I, th I think I eventually succeeded in doing that, but still, it, it's still an ambitious story to sort of put together. Yeah, yeah. Um, why West Germany and Japan? Because if this is something that was global mm -hmm. in the, starting in the early 1950s, mm -hmm. and if it's a group of cosmopolitan researchers and scientists who embark on these projects mm -hmm. around the same time across the globe, mm -hmm. why pick only these two countries? Well, I mean, the, the simple answer is mm. those are the only two research languages that <laughs> I have at that point. Mm. Um, but the point is it could have actually, you could do West Germany and France. That would be a really useful comparison. Mm. You, could do, you could do Britain and West Germany. You could do Japan and France. That would make sense. Um, but I, th I think the, the connective tissue that particularly links um, the Japanese story and the West German story is that they were occupied nations. Um, you know, that were, that were not sovereign for a number of years after World War II. And during that time, um, the re research into atomic energy was banned. Mm. So they had a, a unique story of not being able to go down this avenue that seemed like it was, at the, I guess, the path that, um, it was the trend that, I don't know, the history of science or technology was going down. Mm. In, in that moment in time. So when they finally said, oh, we're going to do this, and this is circa 1954, 1955, the feeling that these people had was that we're, we're, we're behind. We're not there yet. There's a future that exists out there in Great Britain and America, and to some mm. extent even in the Soviet Union, um, and we're not there yet. Mm. We're, in some sense, we're still a quote-unquote backward country. Okay. In this, we've been standing on our, our you know, even after these... Um, prohibitions on atomic energy were undone in, in the early 1950s, they still spent a couple of years not really doing much. Yeah. So they, there's this urgency and there's the, this sense among these people that we're just not there yet. There's mm. something they have and we don't have it. And that, that's, a, that's a really deep-seated, sincere fear about, I don't know, the health of your, your country. Sure. Um, the, so, yeah. These parallels exist in both West Germany and Japan the, yeah. concerning uh, nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent, to some extent they also um, exist in France, at least from my discussions yeah. with people who, who work on the, the history of nuclear energy in France. There's also this sense that we're behind. But I think a lot of that has, has to do with the fact that West, Ger uh, you know, West Germany, Japan, and to some extent France were defeated nations in World War II. Okay. You know, because yeah. France lost against the Germans, sure, sure, and sure. then you know, Germany and Japan are truly devastated. Right. So, um, and they, ha they there's some there's something that needs to be done to overcome this sense of loss mm. and building this, you know, humongous power system with the potential. Uh, if you if you believe what these people are saying, with the potential to create a truly prosperous and and um, happy country mm. um, as opposed to a warring and unhappy country. Mm. Um, if you believe that proposition, then you, you really want to go down that road because right. it looks a lot better than being defeated and mm. you know, being an economic basket case or something. Sure. So how does this start to play out then um, over the next two or three decades? And also, what is the United States' role? I guess 
when answering that question, there are a bunch mm. of different narratives you can construct and stories you could talk about. Right. And there's there's the there's one story that's from the side of the people who are thinking of and, and designing and building these things is what do they do and what decisions do they make? Mm. And then the other story is how do how do how do the responses of people, you know, common citizens change over over twenty years from nineteen fifty five to nineteen seventy five or something? Right. Um, and also, what's sort of going on in the minds of the people who are designing these things with respect to whether or not they're succeeding or failing? Mm. Because what they ultimately want to do is gain the cooperation and understanding of you know the Japanese public. Right. And because they believe they're right. They believe they have the key to solve the future. Because mm. um, they they, they're convinced that they have a severe energy shortage that is going to happen because they're looking at things like doubling time. Like, how long does it take you know, for our current energy consumption to double? Right. And they're seeing these numbers because they're looking 10 to 20 to 30 years into the future. And what they're seeing mm. is, is a, a potential crisis. Right. The population's going to explode. Yeah. You're yeah, looking, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, mm. yeah this is, and in their mind, they're constantly in this sort of state of crisis. Mm. So they need, to, they need to secure the understanding of, of the people um, and they try to do this through PR efforts and all sorts of things um, mm. and they have to convince municipalities to to have a nuclear plant built and this works in some cases because it's helping these towns that are really struggling to survive right because they're dealing with urbanization and you know all, all the problems that we know about right um, but you know, at some point, I think in the late 1960s into the early 1970s, um, they, the people within the, the nuclear, the Japanese nuclear community, start to realize that, despite a lot of success mm. in siting plants, they're they're sort of unable to get over this hurdle, mm. which is to really secure. Um, broad, broad-based understanding that their project is good and safe. Mm. Um, and useful and will help create the prosperous society um, and all that sort of stuff. That was initially promised, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and some of these people who I'm studying, and I'm studying their thought and how they thought about their sort of... How, I'm really studying about how these people thought about the concept of civilization okay. because that was, that was a sort of operative term in, in their way of thinking. They had definitions for what civilization is that probably differ from the way we talk about civilization. Sure. Um, and that they had ideas of, of progress that most certainly differ from our ideas of progress. Mm. Um, and I'm looking at how these people developed these ideas, what these ideas were, and how they, how they changed. And in some sense, I'm looking at their introspection of how they sort of evaluated their lives and their contributions mm. um, by, the, by, you know, let's say the, the 1970s or early 1980s. And, and some people who were... I don't know what, what word to use, severe supporters of nuclear power <laughs> um, and really thought that this was, you know, securing a, a prosperous future for Japan is the way to secure peace mm. because they had lived through World War II and they thought, well, you know, for them, Adams for Peace wasn't just some American propaganda PR effort. Right. Um, it was actually, it actually made sense. Right. You want to keep this country together. You want to keep society from falling apart, right. you have to have enough resources to keep everyone afloat and create this growing economy sure. and all this sort of stuff. Sure. And some of these people um, were 
themselves were at, at least one of one prominent figure in the Japan Atomic Industrial Forum was himself a hibakusha. So you know, he, really, yeah. Wow. Um, so you know, hibakusha is the Japanese for someone who has uh, who was who experienced the atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah, a, an atomic bomb victim. Sorry, and that's one of that's one of the narratives that some very good historians have 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 worked on creating is that. Um, the memory of the atomic bombings mm. was very closely connected with this dream of atomic power. Mm. That one way to overcome mm. this grave wound yeah. that we experience, and it's truly cruel and barbaric thing we experience, is to develop, to develop all the peaceful uses of atomic power. That's mm. a way that you get past this thing. Um, and that was a sentiment that I think was... It wasn't just that some people on one side of the political spectrum adhered to, mm -hmm. that you could develop a coalition of people who felt, believed that from left to right. Right. Um, and not, not everybody who was working in the, you know, despite Japan having a extremely long-lived sort of center-right government longer than you know, one party in power for a long time that's very conservative. Right. People within the nuclear world were, in some sense, cosmopolitan. Mm. Or, or they, had, they had a much more Catholic worldview, or they, were, they, weren't, they were not extremely ideological. You had people who okay. were, you know, in the 30s and 40s, people who might have considered themselves Marxists mm. who could find a way to support um, nuclear power. You had people who were maybe liberal jur journalists um, who who could find their way into the fray. You certainly mm. had people in the business world who are known for being much more conservative. Um, so it's it's a coalition, um, right? And and in in some sense, trying to understand how that worked is is something I'm it's something I'm trying to figure out. Mm. Um, so is that sort of the main focus of your research? Then is pulling together these various narratives. Uh, in an effort to explain mm -hmm. how you know uh, nuclear energy developed in Japan, or are, do you focus on a particular narrative, mm -hmm. or is does that remain to be seen? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it remains to be seen because okay. you know f uh, I'm in my fourth year, I'm d I'm in my research year, and most people who do history PhDs typically finish their dissertations by around year seven or sometimes year eight. So right. I, have, I have a couple more years to actually put the whole story together. Mm. Um, but I think something that needs to be understood is exactly what their vision of the future, what these maybe competing visions of the future looked like mm. within the nuclear world because not everybody agreed. Right. Um, but I think what many people did believe is that this future, this prosperous future based on, on nuclear energy that we want to happen and that we are working towards, they thought that it would happen but mm. much earlier than, you know, the, what, what I do a lot of is looking at these plans for the future yeah. and look, looking at people's horizons, thought, mm. their, their sort of temporal horizons. They think in 10 or 20 or 30 years, this is what society will look like. This is what will have happened. Hmm. So in some sense, I want to look at their optimistic visions of the future um, and not just say, well, these people were wrong. It didn't work. Hmm. Um, but maybe ex explain why at the time they thought it would work. Right. Um, this is a, my problem right now is that I have a lot of answers, but I don't necessarily know what questions I'm answering. Okay. 
Um, so for now, I'm, I'm trying to focus on specific individuals, look at one person, look at their thought mm. over 20, 30 years, see what changed, see on a, on a sort of granular level, um, what, what, you know, how did their focus shift? Right. And I, I think this, this one gentleman I'm looking at, he was a, a University of Tokyo electrical engineering graduate, graduated in 1940. Mm. Um, in the early post-war era, during the occupation, he, he, he just had, he wrote this book called Plans, Plans, Plans or Blueprints for the Restoration of Japan. Mm. And it's essentially, um, what, what he essentially says is that it's a very scathing critique of, of, of Japan in some sense, because he's saying, I have this um, equation for what civilization is. Right, um, and it has to do with the amount of energy um, that that the country has on hand, mm -hmm. and he can measure the level of civilization by saying, "I mean, the equation is something like how how, how much energy you have per capita per person mm. over um, twenty four hundred calories per day, which is how much it okay. takes to sustain Average a human diet, yeah. body." Right, <laughs> um, and then w once you do that, you actually see you can see what level of civilization you're at based mm. on, on, on that equation. Um, he says barbarians are level zero civilization. And a bar mm. what a barbarian civilization is, is a civilization that only has just enough calories to sustain human bodies. Mm. Um, so barbarian is also a sort of operative term in their, in their thought world. Right. So they, they have the barbarian and the civilized. Right. Um, and they're, this, according to this gentleman's um, work, Japan at year 1935 was something like a level four civilization, and America was a level 30 or something. Right. Or did, right. So you know his critique of Japan is is that, I mean, what were we doing fighting this war? Um, you know, for all for all you people who say Japan is now a weak country because we lost the war, or or Japan is weak because the military made all these terrible tactical mistakes or the Navy did something wrong. Mm. For all, all your critiques are missing the entire point. Mm. Look, like, look at our energy system. Mm. It, it is, it is, it's abysmal. Um, we're, we're barely a level four civilization. <laughs> um, and and he's, the, thing, the thing that's interesting and maybe kind of off-putting when you read this is that he's also comparing, he's doing this for every country in the world. Right. And he's doing a lot of comparing Japan to China, comparing Japan to India. Mm. And, you know, the implication is that these countries are barely like level one civilizations. They have right. just twice the amount of, of energy you need to sustain the human body for a day. Mm. And, and this gentleman that I'm looking at, he, he went on to become a very important figure within the, the nuclear community in, in sort of you know, the think tank world of right. imagining futures. And he's, he's, it's very interesting. It's a, it's very intellectually fascinating to read what these people, how these people thought they could judge society. Mm. Um, because I don't think today, I don't think that's, that's how we judge how civilized a country is. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> By any means. Yeah. Um, but you could do that. There was a point in time where that made sense, um, for some people. Sure. Um, so sort of unfolding that and trying to figure out why mm. um, is, 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 is a task that I'm trying to you know, accomplish. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. And, how, and where do Japan and West Germany 
depart in their development over time? Um, or converge? Uh, mm. I think in terms of convergence, you know, they're both countries that have this narrative of themselves, which is in some sense empirically true that they're resource poor countries. Right. Um, they don't have they don't have oil. They have limited amounts of of coal. Uh, Germany has a lot of coal, I guess. Um, but they 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 both at the same point in time see this potential energy gap happening. Mm. And they both they both have the narrative of backwardness, and this is the the narrative of backwardness of not being as quote unquote civilized as another country, the quote unquote advanced countries. Mm. That's something that they both developed, I think, maybe simultaneously in the late nineteenth century. Once you know Japan Japan uh, has the Meiji Restoration and, and Germany becomes a united sort of empire, they're both having this experience of modernity coming very fast. Mm. And very late, if if Britain is or France is the model, right? Um, so they have this experience of seeing the future happening somewhere else. Mm. So they have a path, right? They say we know how to we know how to get there, um, but being behind or being late gives they have this sort of unique perspective mm. because they can borrow, they can borrow technologies, um, they can bring in foreign experts. Experts, they can send their students to other countries to learn, um, which they do in the late 19th century, and then they do in the post-war, specifically with nuclear energy. So they have, they have, a, they both have a similar story that makes it seem like there's a repeat happening mm. of the original modernization push that happened in the in the late 19th century. And they also have um, hmm. what what my advisor calls this sense of developmental alienation. This sort of I, it's a really sort of deep-seated f- feeling of of being backward, um, mm. and having a, a you could call this internalized. It's an internalized sort of Orientalism. That's how some people talk about it. Okay. Um, seeing that you know, just thinking that the West is so freaking fantastic. Right. Um, well, this I understand in terms of of Japan, of course, but in Germany. Um, yeah. So it. My research into the German side of this question is a lot more limited um, than you know. I've I've spent a couple months in Germany, um, yeah. in in a, in a couple archives, and I, I've uncovered unique individuals mm. um, who were a part of the German nuclear program, and you know it sort of goes without saying that the people who were involved in these programs they had past lives. They yeah. they were involved in this in you know in the state during during World War II so, so some of the very important people on the German side of the question were were members of the Nazi party mm. were in the SS there's one gentleman who Karl Winocker he was head of the German atomic industrial forum for for some time i believe you know he in his business dealings because he worked for IG Farben huge conglomerate okay um during World War II, you know, they're working with the Nazi state. Right. He gets sent to Auschwitz because he has, you know, because they have a, a synthetic rubber factory that they're using slave labor on. Mm. So some of these people have these really seedy histories. Well, yeah. um, on the Japanese side of the question, there are, there are people who 
were many of these people were purged from public life by the occupation mm. because you okay. had you had collaborated. Right. One of the most important people, um, although I think his importance is overestimated, he's called the the father of atomic energy. Mm. Is a man named Shodiki Matsutaro. He was imprisoned in Sugamo pr prison over there um, <laughs> for two years for being a suspected war class A war criminal right. um, because he owned the Yomiuri Shimbun, mm. um, you know, and you know there's this sort of history of collaboration between media and the Japanese state, seen as a very sort of evil presence. Mm. Um, he's eventually released um, without being charged, and he he brings television to Japan. He starts. Uh, Nihon Terebi, um, and then eventually he gets involved in the introduction of nuclear energy. So hmm. there are people who have these wartime pasts. Right. So that's and there are pasts that, you know, if you're an American, you at first glance you don't like these people, hmm. um, and you you want to purge them from public life and keep them out. But eventually you agree to work with these people because you want to save the economy and make sure these countries don't go communist or whatever. Right, right. And these people also happen to be like arch anti-communists. It's in their bones. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a history. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they're fascists. <laughs> if, they're, if they're involved in the, in the you know, war movement in Japan or Germany, then that's mm -hmm. pretty much where they stand politically, right? Right, but, but the whole point <laughs> of the post-war, I mean, yeah, you're right in some sense, but... And, that, and that's a sort of line of argument that people mm. can use to then attack the nuclear industry. Look at these people. They were right. fascists. Right. They collaborated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to some sense, I don't want to, in some sense, I don't want to disagree with that. But I also want to say that people, you know, people have these different skins that they put on. Mm. And people, people change their minds. Sometimes, and sometimes it's sincere and sometimes yeah. it's a cover. But they put, they re- they reinvigorate themselves mm. and have their a rebirth, a post-war rebirth. Mm. One of these SS guys who I'm looking at in in uh, Germany, you know, I he never talks about World War II in his writings, but he does talk about a united Europe, and he gets really mm. interested in the idea of uniting Europe through <laughs> energy. And like, you know, united Europe—that's a big. Nazi slogan. Mm. We're going to unite Europe under right. German he hegemony. Right. But now he's like, I still want the same thing, but we can do it. We can do it with atoms for peace. It, we don't. Mm. We don't That's have to have millions of Germans dying. He doesn't. Right. He's not necessarily thinking about people in other countries. Um, I don't know how introspective all these people are, but there, there's a. These people change their minds, mm. and they find a new thing, and it's atomic power, and it works for them. Right. So. That the story of the transformation of these people is is in some sense very interesting. Not simply to just, you know, lash out at them and say, "Look, it's rotten from the beginning." But mm. I don't know to maybe sort of flesh out this story and explain right. it a little more. Well, there's certainly some nuance there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that gets brushed over if all you do is is look at their past. You know, collaborating with the war effort, this mm -hmm. and that. Um, that's that's fascinating. It seems like you could write a dissertation on both. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> so I imagine doing a comparative study and in, in trying to be as well informed on on both simultaneously is quite a a project. But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, I I certainly wish you the best in that regard. Um, 
How is your experience at the Japanese university, right? You've been here for what, maybe eight months, seven months? Six months. Okay, six months, yeah, sorry.、Um, you were at Berkeley for、mm-hmm. the last, what, four year, three and a half years or so.、Mm-hmm. You, you did research at U of C. So you're at amazing、uh, you know, in research institutions in the United States.、Mm-hmm. What, what has been your experience here?、Um, I think they have a great library system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that, a lot of what I'm doing is like, f- you know, finding sources so that、right. I can actually write this story、right. and reading these sources so that I can constantly be reforming my thoughts. And, you know, if I, if I think I have the answer, it's okay if I read something else that helps me reformulate things and change my mind.、Yeah. So I spend a lot of time just. You know, taking out books, getting books on interlibrary loan, reading them,、um, scanning the important parts. Yeah. So,、uh, a lot of what I do is just use the university,、um, you know, use the aspects of the university that benefit me. Right, sure.、Um, and having an office here is nice, having access to essentially every book in a university library in Japan、mm. is useful because、mm. when you actually think about,、um, You know,、uh, books in East Asian languages in the United States. Yeah. It's very few compared to those, you know, the amount of works in Japan. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so that, that's, that's probably the best thing about what I'm doing here. I mean, that's probably the best thing about the university here f- for me. Yeah.、Um, other than that, Yeah, so the, I'm at the, this Institute of Social Science,、yeah. which I think is an, an important place for you know, scholars visit here.、Mm. Uh, every week, somebody else is coming here, or every other week,、mm. um, you're getting a, you know, a lecture about a new book someone's writing. Scholars from the United States come,、mm. scholars from Japan present here, scholars from other countries. So, this, this is a place that has resources that are very useful and keep. Keep my mind sort of active. Yeah. Because I'm not in seminars. Right. I'm not, I don't, I haven't necessarily found a lot of people who, who are deeply interested in my topic. I'm、right. sure they're out there and I've connected with <laughs> some of them in、mm. various places.、Mm. But I, I, you know, I guess I don't want to say it's all been terrific. Mm. Because <laughs> I, I'm doing a lot of stuff independently, which leaves me with a sort of sense of social isolation.、Yeah. And that also has to do with the fact that I've never lived in Tokyo.、Right. I don't have the, these deep rooted connections here. And it's like a huge city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's preposterous. It, it, really, it really is. It really is.、Uh, every time I come, well, especially in the last year, I've, I've probably been up here maybe 30 times. On weekends and you know, different things. And、mm-hmm. it's, it's stunning.、Um, you know, I, I come here so often, and every time I, it, it seems like there are endless places that you can visit just、mm-hmm. within, within Tokyo, and they、mm-hmm. all have their own personality and they all have something different to offer. And yeah, it's, it's you're, you're dealing with like,、uh, with like, you know, astronomical. <laughs> with a city of, of sort of astronomical proportions, that、mm-hmm. it's very difficult to, to manage.、Um, yeah. yeah. And, th- and that's the problem is that because I have no idea how to manage this, I just 
bury my head in this research right um, and try to well if I can do this then I won't have to deal with the fact that I have no idea what's going on right what's going on around <laughs> me yeah but that that seems like that could actually be good then is mm-hmm. you know you put your nose to the grindstone for this year mm-hmm. and extract as much as you can mm-hmm. from the various resources that I mean this is the best research research institution in Japan mm-hmm. by far mm-hmm. um, and you know Get as much as you can out of this, out of these twelve months, mm-hmm. and and carry that back with you to to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine, it would be difficult to strike up a you know a thriving social life as a, re- a visiting researcher here in so Tokyo. Tell me about because, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Tokyo as well is it's a much more socially conservative city than, mm. for example, Osaka, where I did right, my right, research. Right. right? So, I mean, it has its non-socially, you know, it's more socially liberal parts or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it has its nightlife districts, but it's not like right. I'm going to go hang out there all the time, you know. Right. It's not right. really my thing. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Um, do you have anything else that you, that you want to check off your list before you go back? Because it's not like, uh, I mean, I imagine doing this research, you're going to have a strong connection with Japan for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But it's not as easy as flying to Europe or, you know, it's not quite so easy to visit here mm-hmm. on a whim, right, on a lark. Right. Um, is there anything you definitely want to get done in these last three, four months that you have? Um, or no, I'm sorry, it's six, yeah, I, I, have, year, I have like five year. and a half, six months left. Yeah. Um, in terms of things that are not related to research or... or Either one, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, the, in the past couple of years, when I've come to visit Japan in the summer, I've done my research, but I also bought a Japan Rail Pass and just, you know, saw yeah. a bunch of cool stuff. So I've been to, like, way more than half of the prefectures in Japan yeah. and all these little tiny places that, you know, most tourists don't go to. Mm. And I always have a great time just going to a random city, walking into a random hole in the wall and just talking to old people. Yeah. Because um, those are... you some of the most interesting experiences you can have, and you can only have them if you speak some level of Japanese. Sure. Um, if you go to Aomori, you n- can't necessarily communicate with anyone since people don't speak. Their dialect. <laughs> Their yeah. dialect is so hard to to grasp. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, I do, I, like, that's something I enjoy doing, is just going, leaving the city and, mm. and visiting places that maybe don't get that many Western visitors and just talking to people because those are usually the most interesting conversations I have. Yeah. Because that's when there's actually some sort of, I don't know, quote-unquote cross-cultural communication that happens. Yeah. People don't expect that I can speak Japanese. Right. They don't expect me to even be there. Right. Um, and then you can actually, I don't know, make some serious headway and just, I don't know, it's sort of like revelation because they, mm. they don't know anything about you you don't know anything about them and right you know you're willing to trade stories and that's sort of mm. no you're right you're right i've had many uh experiences similar to that and there's no expectation that you're going to meet that person again mm-hmm. right, right <laughs> so right. there's you so you're not you're shy or where japanese people might typically be more reserved socially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're much more willing to open up right, right because right. there're no there're no penalties right. right there's no threat of shame for right. what they might say to this random american right, who right, walked right. into the bar right right 
So yeah, I, I'm similar. I've never been to Aomori though, but I've had many experiences similar to that in the last you know six or seven years that I've lived here. Right. Um, excellent, excellent. Anything else you want to to share? I you know I I imagine if we delve too deep into your research, we might get down a rabbit hole that uh, takes three hours to get out of. Yeah, um, I mean. <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of things that I wanted to say, but yeah. it's just, I don't, it takes too much energy because <laughs> yeah. I need, there, these are things I need to like write out and sometimes read and mm. I need to think about for maybe another six hours before I make a statement about these things. Right, right. Um, but I, I think what I want to say about the research is that, you know, well, how to put this? Yeah. I think there are, there are stories out there um, and it, it, I don't simply want to fill a gap, mm. which is something one of my advisors advi told me not to do. Right. Your job is not to just tell a story that hasn't been told simply because it hasn't been told. Your, your mm. job is to tell a story um, that, that means something. Right. Um, so in, in the end, I don't want to get too bogged down in the sort of minutia mm. of this world and the minutia of the world of nuclear energy and what these people thought because in some sense that that's antiquarian. It's just looking at the past and looking at how complicated it was right. and then writing exactly how complicated it was and showing off that mm. I know all these things. Right. That's that's actually not that interesting. Um, what I want, you know, these. What I want to say in the end is that these people had an idea of how the world works, of how history worked, mm. and they had narratives of history that made sense to them and made sense for their program. Yeah. And what I want to say is that maybe they, these narratives worked for a time. Mm. These were, in some sense, meaningful. But my job as a historian is to sort of take them apart and put back together an, a better narrative. Mm. So to take take all this history into account critique it and then reformulate it to, I don't know, provide a narrative that makes more sense for the year 2018 or right. whenever I finish writing the book. Right. So that, that's fundamentally the, the critical perspective that, that I think most historians these days are, are, are working with. Right. Um, so maybe, yeah, that's, that's how I want to approach the question of nuclear energy. Yeah. You think three years? Another three years before you... Before you finish up, I think I think maybe in, th in within three years I could have finished the dissertation. But mm. if you're in a PhD program and you're at, you're what you're trying to do is get a job teaching at a university, um, sometimes the job market, if there even is such a thing as a job market, <laughs> um, it's it's a lot more vicious than that. And people hang around and in these PhD programs for longer yeah. just so that they can you know wait until they get a position. Mm. Um, so who really knows what happens? Um, right. But anyway, yeah, thanks again uh, for doing this. I really appreciate it. I have studied Japanese history as well, but learning about the history of atomic energy was a uh, uh, first experience for me and for many of my listeners, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's the same. And I think your research is going to be very important moving forward for countries, well, especially Japan, as they face a shrinking population and potential energy crisis and, you know, and research like yours will be important for answering the big questions. Um, thanks again, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much, Elliot. It's, yeah. been, it's been terrific.